Listen to challenging topics and insightful conversations. We don't just report the news. We provide the real story behind the headlines by talking to global decision makers and influential figures. This is The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, fighting inflation. As the global cost of living keeps getting higher, what can the world do to bring it under control? Inflation is now the global economy's biggest enemy. That's according to the head of the International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Georgieva. As countries, including the United States, the UK and Turkey, see their highest inflation rates in decades, and the Eurozone, its highest rate ever, she's warned that 2023 will be even tougher than 2022, unless central banks can work to control it. But with the perfect storm of the COVID pandemic, supply chain problems and the conflict in Ukraine, how's that going to happen? Well, joining me now is the Managing Director of the World Economic Forum, Sadia Zahidi. Um, great to see you and talk to you. I, I have to say, though, you know, everyone seems very surprised um, by inflation. Um, but wasn't inflation being so low for so long the big issue? I think you're you're right there. We have to look at the sort of the longer arc here. And the surprise is perhaps how all of these different factors have come together in the last few months. But if we look at the last two and a half years, you know, we went through lockdowns in COVID. Clearly that created supply-related breakdowns, supply-related pressure. And then as we ease out of those lockdowns, it's taken a whole lot longer to get some of those supply chains working again than it did to simply shut them down. The second element as we came out of it was um, a lot more demand. And of course, with so much support um, across multiple economies, especially in the advanced markets, people were ready to spend, ready to consume again. And then you got a new supply um, shock, which was related to the war, and in particular affected energy prices and combine that with climate changes and what that has done to food supply and, and food prices overall, in addition to the food-related impact of war. So put all of these things together, and we've got this very complex hotbed of supply and demand-related pressures, and that is really fundamentally what is behind the inflation we're seeing today. So central banks around the world have stepped in. Has that been too little, too late? Well, you know, Hindsight is is always twenty twenty, and um, to some extent, you know, there were certainly some voices, people like Larry Summers, that were saying that this inflation will not be transitory, and faster action could have been taken. At the same time, I think, given the crisis that a lot of the crisis mindset that a lot of policymakers were in, in particular central banks, when to start hitting the brakes, when to start having tighter monetary policy. Um, clearly was a very difficult decision, and now we're seeing the consequences. And what it's also thrown up is the tensions, hasn't it, between governments and central banks. Um, certainly, I mean, that's the story here in the, in the United Kingdom. I don't need to tell, tell you about shining a spotlight I'm here, but how do you see it playing out around the world? That's really where some of the concern comes in, that are we now going to have this sort of crisis mindset take over and have too much either too many knee-jerk reactions or a reversion to policies of the past that maybe worked 20 or 30 years ago, but they're not the ones that are going to apply in this very unique or sort of 
perfect storm as as you call it. So that's certainly one concern coming out of this this short term mindset. But I think there's another issue at play here, which is even if we do manage to hit some of the brakes on some of this inflation, and even if there is relative success um, on that front, or or at least not as bad of a recession as some are predicting, what really happens in the longer term? Because if we think about the collective decisions that businesses are making, and we asked our chief economists what they think is going to happen, businesses are right now aligning themselves along geopolitical fault lines. They are going for much more localization. They're going for much more diversification. What this means in the longer term could actually be raised price levels, even if inflation is not so high, for quite a long time to come. Because instead of going for efficiency, a lot of businesses will be taking decisions for broader resilience and redundancy. And those costs will get transferred to consumers. So I think we also have to have an eye on that piece, which means looking towards supply-side policies in the long term. So who should we be taking our cues from? Who, who can you look at and say, OK, they've got that medium-term outlook pretty spot on. Over there, they've got that longer-term perspective. Maybe they can collaborate. I mean, who's setting the example? I think it's very hard to be able to point to a specific government and say, here's who's getting it right. What I think we can look to is a combination of different aspects across different sectors. So let's take an example. The, the, the investments that are going towards greener energy in the long term, this could make energy much more localized. It could make energy much cheaper at local levels. And it could mean that one of the major contributors to longer term price increases could actually go down. So this investment toward green, which a lot of economies have taken up, even if the jury's out as to whether that's going to be good enough for being able to address the broader climate challenges, this could actually have a pretty significant impact in the longer term on lowering prices. I think there's a similar case to be made when it comes to social infrastructure and education and health and care. A lot more needs to be done on that front to make societies more resilient to these shocks. And that then makes the tools that are available to policymakers much more customized, much more refined and not as blunt as the ones they currently have. You mentioned green investment, and it's got me thinking about big forums like COP26 and, of course, the upcoming um, COP27. And the sticking point has often been that some of the emerging and developing economies are holding back from those big spends because they've got other priorities or that they think that there should be more investment in other areas from the developed nations. So how is this whole um, inflation surge going to affect relationships between the developed, developing and emerging economies? Clearly, that's where there's some of the biggest sort of fallout from the current crisis. Developing economies have less fiscal room, um, less ability to be able to spend their way out of the crisis. They're already having to provide safety nets and support to much larger populations that have far less earnings. And then in addition to that, they have far less space to then be spending on some of these longer term goals. So. Developing economies are certainly the ones that are suffering the most through this short-term outlook. But I think this is also where there's an opportunity to rethink what will growth look like in the future for them. They will no longer be competing on the basis of, for example, simply cheap labor. They have an opportunity here to think very differently about how they attract investment. There are some interesting stories, um, some of the shifts that are happening 
from China to India, some of the shifts that are happening towards countries like Vietnam and Bangladesh, some of the windfall and the profits that are coming out of current oil prices in the Middle East, again, is boosting some of the possibility in those economies to invest for the future and to diversify for the future. So there is opportunity. It's really going to be about how policymakers in those countries spend differently. And it is also going to be about how advanced economies and developed markets think very differently about aid and investment because there are many parts of the world where these opportunities do not exist and where they are going to have to think very differently about debt distress in particular. You talk about possibility, you talk about opportunity, but the world's economic outlook from the chief economist is a, is a pretty miserable read, isn't it? I mean, COVID-19 continues to affect growth. We've got the conflict in Ukraine causing major economic disruption, threatening energy supplies, as you've mentioned. And all of this is fueling inflation. It, it's a global problem. Are there any winners here? I think there aren't any necessarily winners at the present stage because of how much of a perfect storm this is, because of what type of crisis it is. But what the chief economist outlook does also point to is that there are tools in the hands of policymakers. There is the need for a medium-term outlook. There is the need for much greater policy coordination across countries. These are global problems, therefore they do require global coordination. And so looking again towards multilateral institutions and seeing how they can provide greater support, greater coordination, I think that's going to be the way to go. And the outlook does point to that, while at the same time pointing out all of the concerns around the grim picture at present. Sadia Zahidi, always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Still to come here on the agenda, pipeline problems, why rising energy costs are threatening to push the world into recession. Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get an hour wavelength every week to find out what's real with China Africa Talk. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. We'll see you there. Listen to challenging topics and insightful conversations. We don't just report the news. We provide the real story behind the headlines by talking to global decision makers and influential figures. This is The Agenda. Welcome back to The Agenda. Sadia Zahidi thinks the current inflation crisis could provide an opportunity to reshape the global economy. But is the world ready to do that? And even if it is, it looks like things might get worse before they get better, according to the latest report from the World Trade Organization. Joining me now are Coleman Nee, Economics Affairs Officer at the World Trade Organization, Jeffrey Sachs, Economist and Director of the Center for Sustainable Development, Columbia University, and Chu Chang, Assistant Director of the International Monetary Institute at Rimnin University, in Beijing. Gentlemen, thank you all very much um, for being here. Um, Coleman, I'm going to start with you because the WTO's report <laughs> is pretty gloomy, isn't it? I mean, showing trade growth dropping sharply to just 1% next year compared to initial estimates of 3.4%. So 
How much is all of this down to what we're seeing with inflation? Well, it's, it's indirectly due to inflation uh, to the extent that uh, import demand is closely related to global GDP and uh, inflation is weighing on, on economies at the moment. The question then becomes like how much of, of it is due to inflation and what are the causes? There are always, there's always a reason behind price changes. So uh, if we look at Europe at the moment, it's very closely linked to supplies of, uh, of energy and natural gas as a result of the Ukraine uh, conflict. And also regional, uh, it's more so affecting Europe than uh, other regions because natural gas markets tend to be more, more regional than global. If you turn to the United States, though, uh, the United States has a tighter labor market, higher nominal wage growth. And so this could be a sign of, of more, uh, maybe the, the uh, result of uh, monetary and fiscal policies since the pandemic. Then if you look at uh, Asia and, uh, and uh, including China, there have been pandemic related uh, disruptions in production and shipping and also uh, lingering after effects from the pandemic that have caused certain goods to become in scarce supply. And so that has pushed up prices for, for uh, goods in that case. But regardless of the cause, inflation is uh, squeezing households and, uh, and uh, increasing production costs for businesses, which hurts economic growth and then in turn hurts trade. And Jeffrey Sachs, that the United States has been accused of exporting inflation. If we look at um, you know Fed hiking their interest rates faster and higher, maybe that's put pressure on other countries, put pressure on the value of, of other currencies. Do you think that's a, a fair assessment of the current situation? I think the basic point is that the world is suffering from what we call stagflation for the first time in 40 years. Stagflation means that supply has gone down, but the spending has actually gone up in currency terms. And that's because we've had disruptions on the supply side, the pandemic, the war, the sanctions, the geopolitical tensions. But on the demand side, when the pandemic hit, the central banks expanded the money supplies enormously in the United States and in Europe. And when you expand the money supply, that gives an inflationary impulse. When you have a contraction of supply, that raises prices while lowering output. And so we have, uh, in this sense, the, the worst of both worlds. That is what stagflation is, falling output, rising prices. We had it in the 1970s when we had energy disruptions from the Middle East. Now we have it uh, in this uh, decade uh, because of similar disruptions, actually, disruptions of the energy supplies combined with expansionary monetary policy in the past couple of years. Just to add, now the central banks, especially the Fed and the European Central Bank, are fighting the inflation. But when you fight inflation that has come from the causes that I've described, you worsen the downturn without having much effect in the very short run on prices. And the result is that you make the economic contraction even stronger, the idea being to get the inflation back under control. In other words, the next months are going to be very difficult for the world economy. It is a difficult time for the economy. And Chu Chang, I'd like to bring you in now, because you know, as Jeffrey was saying, from, from Norway to Nigeria, I think around 75 central banks have lifted their benchmark interest rates in just the past year. But in spite of inflation threats, um, the risk of rising debt and pressure on the yuan, the Bank of China 
is one of the few central banks who has lowered interest rates. So was what are we seeing there? Well, I think China is a very different uh, situation, especially if you walk in the shoes of the Central Bank of China, you will feel that first of all, the cycle of Chinese economy is, uh, you know, uh, halfway, uh, well, well, let's like say half a year or maybe one year slower than the America situation because we've been spending a very long time controlling the pandemic. And therefore, we didn't go through the full cycle that USA or Western Europe has experienced, that's for one thing. And secondly, is because China have a not fully liberalized a capital account, which gives the Chinese central bank the leeway or more space to do uh, more of their uh, monetary policies. So we basically say we have more sovereignty or we have more power of independent decision making. And also, if you take a look at Chinese manufacturing sector, which, which is amazing. And uh, in the first uh, half of this year, Chinese manufacturing or export area has been achieving more than two trillion US dollar surplus only by half a year. Considering how much capital flow out in the other foreign countries, China still have a pump to pump in the money while maybe they're going to be capital outflow when the US government hike up the interest rate. And also uh, we find uh, there is another point that is the Federal Reserve is helping China or certain countries like China. Because in China, we have a saying, do you know what is the best Kung Fu? The best Kung Fu master is the fastest Kung Fu master. When you punch fast enough, they wouldn't do whatever to do. So Federal Reserve punches very fast. They pump up the interest rate really quickly. Jeffrey, I want to know who you think um, could be punching faster, pu punching harder. I mean, we think you know, Sadia Zahidi from the World Economic Forum told us that it's really hard to determine whether any central banks are getting their approach to the crisis right. Do you agree? Are there any central banks who maybe we should be taking the lead from? Well, the point is that these shocks have been very hard and the challenges facing the central banks have been very difficult. When the pandemic hit, the contraction in the world in 2020 was extremely sharp. And the reason that the Federal Reserve pumped in a lot of money at the time, really an extraordinary amount, trillions of dollars pumped in by the central bank through open market operations was to prevent a financial crisis alongside the pandemic. So it was very tricky to read. We hadn't had a pandemic like that in a hundred years and the Fed acted very sharply, but no doubt what the Fed did in 2020 is now coming back to bite us uh, in a way because the monetary effects are <clears throat> gradually working through. First, they pumped up the stock market actually, then they pumped up commodities prices. Now they're working their way through the rest of the economy. And at the same time, those supply shocks that I talked about, not only the pandemic, but the war, the sanctions regime, which has really had a big boomerang effect on Europe. It applied sanctions, but it's getting very hard hit by the sanctions that it applied. And also we can mention one other major category of supply shock, and that is all the climate related disasters that we felt around the world in China, in Europe, in the United States, uh, in many developing country regions, also having its adverse effect on supply contributing further to price increases in food and other commodities. All in all, this is a mess. We are in a crisis with no easy solution. The most straightforward thing to do when you're hit by supply shocks is to try to end those supply shocks. I speak every day about the need for a negotiated end to this war. 
and uh, a reversal of this sanctions regime, because then we could get back to an economy that we can recognize out of this massive crisis economy. As long as the war in Ukraine continues, as long as the sanction regime continues, Europe's going to be in a very deep crisis. uh, And that is going to uh, have effects all over the world. So central banks can't solve problems like that. Central banks can't solve problems. Coleman, I wonder if this is something you agree with, because they do face a tough choice, um, don't they? It's something that the WTO um, report makes quite clear. Don't do enough, and you might need stronger intervention in the future. Do too much, risk-triggering recession. So is there any way to get that balance right? There's no magic formula. If if there were, then governments would uh, adopt it automatically. The important thing is for us not to do anything that will exacerbate the problems in in the short term. There's a strong temptation to use trade policy, export restrictions, and so forth to secure access to goods that are have been affected by the uh, crisis, the war in Ukraine, like food and fertilizers. But this is only going to exacerbate inflation, and it's going to lower living standards, particularly in poor, you know, developing economies, but also uh, lower income consumers in advanced economies. This is something that um, during the the pandemic we saw initially a lot of governments tried to impose export restrictions on medicines and other medical supplies and it it turned out it didn't work that well so they they uh, soon found that the trade was more important and I think that that you know the supply side of this uh, problem is something that central banks and fiscal policy can't really address directly and the important thing is to for governments to engage with the multilateral trading system to keep markets open and to allow easier access to these essential goods that could cause a humanitarian crisis in developing countries if things uh, get worse. Jeffrey, uh, I can see you nodding vociferously along there. Coleman was talking about trying not to exacerbate the problem, but if we look at where we are now, you know, one of the biggest drivers of inflation globally has been rising energy prices uh, because of the conflict in Ukraine. It's been exacerbated by the problems we've seen with the Nord Stream pipeline. So is there really any way that inflation can be tackled while we've got this energy crunch? Well, the inflation can be tackled, but it will deepen the downturn of the real economy. Jobs lost, output falling. And what Coleman's saying is very wise. There's a a great tendency in crises to improvise in part by very protectionist policies. Each country acts in a way that thinks it's good for its local politics. But when you add up the barriers and restrictions that get thrown up, that's another supply shock in the world. It's another major disruption to how the world economy works. And so when you go into a downturn, if it gets compounded by protection, you can get a disaster. By the way, the Great Depression is a a historical case that started about 90 years ago. And there was a downturn, a financial crisis, but then one country after another resorted to protectionism, and that led to a further downward spiral. And I think this point is really worth emphasizing because there's so little trust among the major economies right now. Uh, The big economies uh, don't even talk to each other. The US and China, to my deep regret, you know, have very bad relations right now. I put a lot of the blame on the United States, uh, by the way, for this, because it's been in a kind of heated contest with China and it's creating tensions. But the more these tensions are there, the harder it is to avoid a downward spiral. So 
Normal people want the economy to function. They don't want high geopolitical tensions, wars, sanctions, and all the rest. And we actually pay for our governments, I think, to negotiate, not to fight wars. And so I'd rather that we were toning down the tensions and solving the supply side crises, just again, to emphasize central banks can stop inflation, but they can't do it without causing a lot of pain. And they're intent on stopping the inflation, so the pain is on its way already. If we want to reduce the pain, you don't look to the central bank, you look to the underlying sources of the pain and you try to solve those problems. Find out what the whole world is thinking in the agenda. Coming up on a future agenda. Can Europe cope without Russian oil and gas? Is there really any way to avoid a long, dark winter? But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.